Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. In August 1971, a food revolution was quietly launched in California with the opening of a small Berkeley bistro called Chez Panisse. At a time when prepackaged fast food was all the rage in the U.S., Chez Panisse created dishes using locally sourced meats and farm-to-table produce. The fabled restaurant became an incubator for the slow food movement and sparked a change in attitudes towards food across America. At the helm was founder and food revolutionary Alice Waters. And in the kitchen were a succession of talented and colorful chefs who would go on to gain success in their own endeavors. On this week's show, we celebrate 50 years of Chez Panisse by digging into our archives to bring you the voices of some of its famous alumni. We begin with Jeremiah Tower, who teamed up with Waters to put Chez Panisse on the map. We then voyage into the vegetable kingdom with Deborah Madison and explore Jewish cooking with Joyce Goldstein, who both spent formative years in the Chez Panisse kitchen. Finally, we revisit our conversation with Chef Cal Peternell, who spent 22 years of his life with the Chez Panisse family. We're tracking the history of farm to table in the place where it all happened on this week's Louisiana Eats. To kick off this episode, we take you back a dozen years to one of our earliest Louisiana Eats interviews, which aired in August 2010. Let's begin right in the middle of it. Alice, would you share your vision about what lunch should be like for all school children? Well, I have a very complete and idealistic vision. It's so important that we feed every child. We need to feed them a wholesome and delicious school lunch, and they shouldn't have to pay for it. It should be an experience that is beautiful and communicative, and nourishing in the deepest level. Our guest that day was food icon Alice Waters, describing her hopes for the Edible Schoolyard, a program she founded in Berkeley in 1995 and first replicated in New Orleans in 2006. I'm thinking about pure food, food that is sustainably raised, bought locally, supporting the agriculture of the place nearby the school, and that's it. There's not a way to serve children sort of better lunches. It's either really good or it's not. 
and I'm interested in the former. Since our conversation in 2010, Alice's Edible Schoolyard Project has expanded across Louisiana and the U.S., teaching countless children about sustainable food and agriculture. It's a project that perfectly fits her worldview, that food should be both local and seasonal, something that Alice demonstrated with her first project, Chez Panisse. But even visionaries need a little help to get their ideas off the ground. Alice was able to do this by teaming up with our next guest, who became head chef at Chez Panisse in 1973. Let's hear our conversation with him from 2017. My name is Jeremiah Tower. I'm a chef and author of cookbooks, and I'm a scuba diver. (laughs) People ask me, well, do you have a business card? And I say, no. And they say, well, why not? I said, well, I don't know what to put on it. Well, I can think of a few things. Jeremiah Tower has led a legendary career that has spanned multiple countries and earned several awards. Beginning his career at Alice Waters Chez Panisse in Berkeley, Jeremiah transported his culinary vision along the California coast, opening his landmark San Francisco restaurant, Stars, in 1984. Stars became a template for new American cuisine and helped establish him as one of the world's first celebrity chefs. In April 2017, Jeremiah became the subject of an impassioned documentary produced by the late Anthony Bourdain. Jeremiah joined us in the studio shortly after its premiere to discuss the film and how his relationship with Bourdain had evolved over the years. Our conversation began with Jeremiah taking us back to his unlikely culinary origins. Well, my training was being ignored by my parents, you know, which in the right location is an amazing education. I mean, they traveled all over the world first class with me. I mean, I went around the world twice before I was 16. Um, But then, you know, when I was 30, my grandfather died and my allowance stopped. So I figured, you know, there was a terrible shock. I bet. That I had to actually work for a living, you know, and I didn't know what. I was trained as an architect in uh, graduate school at Harvard, and then I went out on the world, and it turns out I was a lousy architect. And then in San Francisco, I ran out of money, so I took the first job that I could find, which was as a, as a chef in this little restaurant called Chez Panisse in Berkeley. Oh, just some little restaurant in Berkeley called Chez Panisse. Well, it was a little and restaurant, how did, you know. How, but how did you get the job as chef? What were you, what was your qualification? Well, they were more desperate than I was. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they said, come and be interviewed at 6 o'clock on a certain day. And I showed up at 6 o'clock. And, of course, that shows you how little they knew about the restaurant business because at 6 o'clock is when your first customers are served. You don't give interviews, you know, then. So... They said, oh, no, no, come, you know, it's, we can't talk to you, come back tomorrow. So I went out on the sidewalk, and then I thought, wait a minute. This just cost me $5.25 on the bus here and to go back. So I went back inside, and I said, look, you told me to be here at 6 o'clock. I was, and I want my interview. And they said, no, we can't talk to you, can't talk to you. And Alice, well, I didn't know, but was standing there and said, well, do something to the soup. And there was this huge pot of soup because everybody got soup. And there was only one menu for everyone. And I tasted it, and I added salt 
and cream, because I probably put cream in everything in those days, and they tasted and went, wow. (laughs) 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 Come back tomorrow. And I did, and they interviewed me, and I gave them some menus, and the next thing I knew, I was the executive chef. And the first day I showed up, there was no one in the kitchen. I was on my own. So I just thought, well, I'm just going to cook whatever I know how to do, you know. How long had Chez Panisse been open at the time you went to work there? About a year. Well, those were very exciting times. Yes, and it's hard to for anyone to think back how simple those times were. When I say there were no fresh herbs, I mean, let's face it, everything in Whole Foods in those days didn't exist at all. No olive oil, no fresh herbs, no, I mean, the cheeses were Vela Jack, mm-hmm. which I didn't know, I'd never cooked with, didn't know how to cook with it properly. Um, so I refused to cook with anything except perfect ingredients and there weren't any. So we set about finding them. And that's where f- that foraging came from. Well, from that period of time, when you look back on it, what were the best of times and what were the worst of times? There were a few worst times. I mean, there was one when the dishwasher cut off his finger and it was in the <gasps> bottom of the sink and it was very dirty, you know, oily water. And there was a, we sent him to the hospital with a busboy or some, a taxi and there was a call on the kitchen phone, and it was the hospital saying, well, where's the finger? <gasps> and I went, you know, uh-huh. as a chef, I don't think about fingers that much. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, you know, you could, I couldn't ask anyone else to go into that sink. So I was in there with my two hands, trying going around the bottom of the sink until I found the finger. And, you know, there were no Ziploc bags in those days. So we'd put it in saran wrap and send it in another taxi over to the hospital. That, that's a typical restaurant day. <laughs> well, that's kind of a rough day. But the, the highlight, you know, was when we did uh, blue trout, live trout cooked to order, which we'd brought up on a big truck from Big Sur. Evenings like that, that was the champagne dinner. That was brilliant. The California Regional Dinner in 1976, when I finally said, why are we beating our heads against the wall with you know, trying to cook food from Corsica or Brittany or whatever, since we are using the best of the local ingredients, why not just call it that? So I'd put on, in 1976, I put on the California Regional Dinner. The menu is in in English. The wines were all from California. And that's what caught the press's imagination, that caught James Beard's imagination. And he wrote endlessly about it. Well, you leave that sort of charming, intimate Chez Panisse, and not too terribly long later, you end up with the amazing phenomena that was Stars. Tell us about your time at Stars. We could never have done Stars if I'd just gone cold into it the way I did at Chez Panisse. I had a team, a core team, together by that time. At the opening day, the people at the reception said to me, so what kind of restaurant is it? Of course, nobody had read the, the handbook that we'd handed out to the staff. So I said, well, you know, it's an American brasserie. And they said, what's the dress code? I said, everything from blue jeans to black tie. So at the end of the night, I went over to them and said, okay, so, you know, what was the feedback? And she said, every time I said American brasserie, everybody went, oh, yeah, fine. And I said, well, that's more than we know. I have no clue what an American brasserie <laughs> is. And she said they loved Everything from blue jeans to black tie, which, of course, is how it turned out. The food, again, we did the different menu every day. It was just whatever we wanted to do. 
that you could do for 500 people for dinner, you know. 500 people, what an enormous number. The, the most we ever did was 701, and that's when I was working the door, and the busboys were so terrified of me that they cleared the tables twice as fast. We did 701 instead of 500. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the kitchen begged me never to be on the door again, you know. So now at this point in your life, Anthony Bourdain decides to make a documentary about you. What did you think when he approached you about this? It must be a very odd and kind of spooky feeling at the same time. Well, not as spooky as having to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) That's really weird. No, but when he asked me, I thought, hold on a second. Ten years ago, Anthony Bourdain said I was a traitor for leaving the industry, okay? A year or two after that, he said I was a train wreck. Then a couple of years after that, he said the first vaguely nice thing about (laughs) me. And a couple of years after that, he met him and he said, oh, Jeremiah, you know, I really admire you. And I'm thinking, you do? Then I met him in New York and he, you know, Anthony, of course, is incredibly charming. He's probably the most brilliant person I've ever met, the way he can verbalize all the huge knowledge that he has very well. I, I, I adore him. Anyway, so I said, yeah, okay. I mean, it's a very weird idea, but, you know, he's very persuasive. So I said, yeah, and they said, well, would you do a test? And then he told me a few things about meeting Alice Waters. When Anthony called her the Paul Pot of the culinary world or the Khmer Rouge of the culinary world or something, and I just thought... That's pretty extreme, you know. So my private theory is that he was so pissed at Alice, he thought he'd do a a movie about me. (laughs) (laughs) And I decided, you know, there's no point doing this unless you just blab. Yeah. You know, don't try and sculpt it, you know, for the best press or something. I mean, if it was going to be a fluff job, it would just be stupid. So I didn't. So the first question was, what was your father like? And out of my mouth, I was jet-lagged and tired and didn't have a glass of champagne. So I said, he was a And I went, oh, my God, what have I just said? (laughs) I don't know where that came from. You know, after, you know, 50 years of wanting to say it, I guess. I don't know. But once I'd said it, I thought I relaxed and went, okay, whatever. Well, I have to say it has been such an incredible honor to have this opportunity to sit and visit with one of the greats in American food, Jeremiah Tower. Thank you, Jeremiah. Thank you, Bobby. The honor is mine. That was chef, restaurateur, and author Jeremiah Tower speaking to us back in 2017. Coming up next, we revisit our conversation with another Chez Panisse alum, America's vegetarian cooking pioneer, Deborah Madison. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. (music) 
Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program. Shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. are just joining us, on this week's show, we're celebrating 50 years of Chez Panisse by digging into our archives to bring you the voices of its famous alumni. Next up is Deborah Madison, who studied and cooked at the San Francisco Zen Center for 18 years before joining the team at Chez Panisse. She went on to open her own landmark restaurant, Greens, in 1979. Deborah spoke with us following the publication of her now classic book, Vegetable Literacy, in 2013. From the start, your books have always been very veg and fruit-centric, yet you're not strictly a vegetarian, are you? I'm not. I was for about 20 years pretty much a vegetarian until I started working at Shape Anise, and then, of course, I had to taste everything. Um, I've always chosen to say that I'm not. If I go out to dinner, I don't want to be the person who makes some poor woman jump through hoops <laughs> to accommodate me. I really, really don't. I feel strongly about that. But also, I decided a long time ago that if I went on the road in public as a vegetarian pushing some sort of a food regime, the question I would have all my life would be, do you get enough protein? And that's just not what I was interested in. I was so much more interested in how is food growing, how are animals raised, how are we going about providing food for ourselves in our world? That's what really interests me. Well, you have never been the in-your-face activist. You have found the quietest, most approachable way to take us all to your table with you. And I'd like you to take us back to your start at the San Francisco Zen Center. And you studied there at the Zen Center for 18 years. So how did those experiences form your way of eating and thinking about food? Well, I think actually probably the food itself is what informed me <laughs> because I was very interested in cooking when I became a Zen student. Um, that was already part of who I was. And then all of a sudden I'm in this community in the late 60s 
eating just the most horrible food, you know. I mean, it was really the food of the cliched brown food vegetarian menu. The gruel. You know, it was heavy. Nobody knew how to cook it. Intentions were good to move away from processed food to get back to cooking from scratch. But, you know, no one had a clue. And I became the head cook pretty much early on. And I really didn't care that it was vegetarian. I just wanted to cook. And I had some real challenges, one being, how do you bring everyone to the table if you're serving food that people don't recognize, that they don't particularly like, that's really radically different from how they grew up? So, How'd you, you know, do that? I introduced butter. <laughs> <laughs> butter played a very important role. I mean, maybe it was we had to go back a few steps in order to go forward. Well, I just love the whole trip of your life and this new stop that you've taken us to, the new book, Vegetable Literacy. This didn't really start off as a cookbook, did it? Oh, no. (laughs) I thought maybe there'd be 20 recipes or something. Yeah, and how many ended up in there? Yeah, about 300. But, you know, that's what happens. I mean, if you write cookbooks, you don't really get to write anything else. Actually, I'm rather glad now because... It does give people a handle to um, process this other information, which most people probably, you know, plant families, all of that, may not find as exciting as I do. So having some recipes that relate to them, I think, probably is a good thing. You made it very approachable. Some people will also be a little surprised by some of the things that you're encouraging them to eat. So what are, do you think are some of the stretches? Like there's some wild foods. Well, I think, too, it depends on where we are. There is more of an interest in wild foods. But wild spinach, for example, um, or lamb's quarters, as it's commonly known. And, and where I live in the southwest, it's called calites. Um, traditional people here always eat that. It's always a weed in the garden. Now some of the farmers have started selling it at the farmer's market. And then you discover, gosh, it doesn't taste that different from spinach. Why not use it? It's in the garden. It's growing among the potatoes or whatever. So I think that things that people may be surprised by is um, eating chard that's already decided to bolt. Mm -hmm. You know, I tell a story about picking off all these long, long stems and the leaves get smaller and smaller and further and further apart. And I was taking it to the compost and I thought, wait a minute, I wonder if you can eat these. Took it all back into the kitchen. I pulled off the leaves. I chopped up the stems and cooked them. And yeah, you can. But their flavor changes a little bit. It's a little bit more wild and a little bit stronger. It's not quite like the big fleshy, lovely, large leaves you buy at the market. So having a garden just opens your eyes. It makes you see possibilities that you wouldn't see if you didn't have a garden. I was really fascinated by a lot of your recommendations on utilizing the whole plant, the things that usually go into the compost heap, and that's a perfect example of it. Oh, yeah, but also, I mean, you can go to the store, buy a bunch of radishes, Mm-hmm. And those leaves, whether you grew them or somebody else did, are perfectly edible. And, in fact, that's where the nutrition is, is in the leaves, not in the roots. So, hey, you might as well put them in a soup or a salad or do something with them. I would like you to play the soothsayer for us. I want to know what you believe the future of food holds for us all. 
Oh, boy. Well, you know, it's pretty depressing, actually, the future of food. <laughs> you know, um, it, I can come down on two sides. I think more and more, those of us who want real food and food that's really full of nutrition and that's not going to harm us and that we love and enjoy, I think more and more we have to go underground. We have to fight hard for it. We have to get it for ourselves. We have to make a special effort. It's not easy. You know, there's just too much out there that's getting in the way, the GMOs, the this, the that. And I, for one, am really sick of reading labels. <laughs> so if we care about these things, flavor and also um, the nutritious side of it, we have to look at soil and we have to look at varieties. We have to kind of take charge in a way that we haven't had to do for a generation or two. I think that's starting to happen on a lot of levels. So, I mean, it is possible to do it, but it has to be done. There certainly is a lot more urban growing going on that's ever, Mm. ever happened. You know, rooftops in New York City and abandoned lots in New Orleans. Yeah, it's amazing. I did see a garden in West Oakland that was made by the city slickers. It was so encouraging to see this beautiful food being grown for this particular neighborhood. I came away from that garden feeling like there's really hope. Deborah Madison speaking with us in 2013 about vegetable literacy. The book went on to nab a James Beard Award in 2014. Next, we revisit our conversation with Joyce Goldstein, who was chef of Chez Panisse's Upstairs Cafe for three years before opening her groundbreaking Mediterranean restaurant, Square One, in San Francisco. The teacher and award-winning author spoke with us in 2016 about her cookbook, The New Mediterranean Jewish Table. Most of the Jews that came to the United States came from Eastern Europe. They were the Ashkenazi Jews. And they settled on the East Coast, which is sort of media central. And the image that was projected is with blintzes and borscht and bagels and, you know, kugel and brisket. And so in the average person's mind, when you say Jewish food, they they, they think bagels and lox or, or brisket. And it disregards this entire huge community of Jews from other parts of the world. But see, very few Mediterranean Jews came to this country. So I guess I would like people to realize that Jewish food is a huge vocabulary of recipes from other countries, but largely vegetable-based and um, a a much better and much more diverse diet. I'm wondering if you could sort of walk us through the various spices and flavorings that define all of these different varieties of Jewish food and the people who cook it. Okay, well, it's it's a very interesting story. If you look at Spain and Portugal, uh, paprika, garlic, always lemon, always olive oil, um, a few herbs, 
but it's basically a fairly neutral cuisine, some cinnamon in, in the sweets. When you get to Italy, again, it's basil and parsley and a little nutmeg and a little cinnamon, but also pretty subdued. The Italians are not sitting around eating spicy Jewish food. Then you get to North Africa, and it's like a riot of all the different spices. I mean, between the charmoulas and the harissas and the preserved lemon and the caraway, coriander, cumin, you know, it's it's everything. Yet when you get to other parts of the Middle East, Greece and Turkey, you get the cinnamon-tomato dynamic in Greece and the use of dill and mint. And Turkey maybe picks up a little bit on the allspice, but again, a little more subdued. And then you get to the Arab countries, the you know, the Mizrahi Jews, and um, some have some spices in it, uh, but again, a more balanced palette of spices and herbs. And the introduction of ingredients like sumac and tahini and the fruits of the quince, the figs, the dates, all of those sort of sweet and sour. And a lot of this comes from Iran. I mean, that whole sweet, sour fruit with meat thing started in Iran, made its way into North Africa, sort of through Morocco, and then up into Catalan, Spain, and then over to Turkey. So it's formed a whole circle. It's sort of interesting that a good idea, a good flavor idea has made its way all the way around the mid. It, it's very fascinating to me that that whole transverse of countries and cultures. And as I understand it, one of the things you were doing was actually working with old recipes that said crazy things that 21st century cooks can't possibly translate, like an eggshell of this or... or a mustard glass or some weird measurement. No, I mean, it's you became sort of a detective, uh, tracing these recipes and cooking them and trying to figure out what they meant. I mean, sometimes they'd say fold in the usual manner. Well, if you weren't there in that kitchen, who knows? <laughs> so it really was a lot of trial and error, a lot of recipe testing. And then putting in the context of the modern palate, because today Americans want food that's a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more intense in flavor. Um, and I think that when I was cooking these recipes, sometimes I'd say, man, I better increase the lemon juice or, you know, I'd cook it for my family or friends. It's great, but it needs it needs something. There's always it needs something. And often it was a squeeze of lemon or a little bit more heat or up the spices. I love the fact that you've got a whole chapter about savory pastries in particular. And you mentioned that you're concerned that handmade pastries are endangered. You want to tell me about that? Well, yeah. You know, in the old days, women did not go to work, so they had a whole day to cook. And it was housing was very communal. Families lived together. They'd sometimes gather in a courtyard and sit around a table and do a lot of work together. In Algeria, I was reading about a family where the entire block made matzah for Passover together and did it each day so that each family had enough matzah to get through the holidays. So a lot of these women, there was, there was no rush. No one had to go to soccer practice at 10 o'clock or whatever. <laughs> they could cook all day and sit around the table and fold these little pastries and, you know, take their time. And now it's very lonely to sit and do a lot of these things by yourself. 
No, the high point of the day was standing around the table with other cooks tasting food and saying, all right, do we like it this way? What does it need? We want all to be in agreement so that when we serve this dish, this is our signature. And I love tasting with other people. And even now when I cook with my family, I'll say, will somebody taste this, please? Am I, am I on the right track? Do you like it? Is this right? Because there's something about tasting communally that's a beautiful thing to do. Joyce Goldstein, author of The New Mediterranean Jewish Table. We spoke in 2016. What is mesclin? And how does Alice Waters feature in that story? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor and from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events itinerary suggestions and more at louisiananorthshore.com Here's this week's culinary quiz question brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is mescaline and how does Alice Waters feature in that story? Mescaline is baby salad greens, now widely recognized as spring mix and sold under that name in almost every grocery store across the country. Alice Waters' food sensibility came to the forefront during her time spent in France while pursuing a degree in French cultural studies at UC Berkeley. There, she first tasted mescaline, which had been filling salad bowls in Provence for hundreds of years. Traditionally, mescaline is a combination of chervil, arugula, lettuce, and endive, harvested while the leaves are still less than four inches long. The lettuces can include bib or boston, romaine, and cutting lettuce, a non-heading type like oak leaf that features curled or fringed leaves. Today's mescaline often includes maizuna, tatsoi, radicchio, spinach, frisee, and even dandelion greens. 
When Alice opened Chez Panisse, she persuaded her Northern California farmers to grow it out specially for her. Knowledge and a desire for those baby greens grew out of Alice's Berkeley Culinary Incubator. Years ago, when she traveled to New Orleans, I was very concerned that our love for traditional iceberg, you know, that cold crunch under shrimp remoulade or on a poor boy sandwich, might be offensive to Miss Alice. As I tried to explain our need for that workhorse lettuce, Alice patiently looked at me and said, Oh, Poppy, I served iceberg at Chez Panisse just last week. Beautiful, tiny heads of organic iceberg. Why can't it be just that? That amazing attitude of Alice's is exactly what has driven spring mix onto almost every dinner table in America today. So the next time you tuck into a beautiful salad of baby greens, remember to thank Miss Alice Waters. It was her vision and drive that got it there. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. We end this week's show with one of Chez Panisse's longest tenured head chefs, Cal Peternell. In 2017, Cal ended his career there after 22 years in the kitchen. When he joined us in the studio, he was two years shy of retiring and on the heels of publishing his first cookbook, 12 Recipes. Here's our conversation with him from 2014. Hello, I'm Cal Peternell. I'm the chef at Chez Panisse Restaurant and the author of 12 Recipes. In the farm-to-table category, there might not be a more emblematic kitchen than Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California. Behind the stove there for the past 20 years is Cal Peternell, a man whose professional and domestic families have spent so much time together, it's hard to separate the two. I was thinking about getting ready to kind of maybe have to leave the restaurant business because I had one son who was three and my second son was on the way. And I just started thinking, you know, I was looking around at my peers and none of them seemed to be married, let alone have kids because, you know, it's, it's you work nights and you work long hours and weekends. And so the restaurant business doesn't always lend itself to the family life. Uh, but then when I got to Chez Panisse, I, I knew right away I had made the right decision because they agreed to hire me about three weeks before my son was due to be born, my second son, Milo. You know, I said, well, are you sure you want – we can just wait because I'm going to need to have time off. And if you want to just wait, you know, in a month or something and hire me then. And they said, oh, no, don't worry about it. We'll give you the, we'll give you the time away after your son's born to be with him. So that's the kind of thing I think that earns people's um, – loyalty and keeps them around a long time. Uh, it, it's such a unique place to work that when, you know, when people leave, we often say to them, half kiddingly, you know, you'll be back. And about half the time they do come back because they get out there in the big, ugly world and they, you know, they just come home. Um, you're probably familiar with the restaurant culture that there's a lot of turnover. There's kind of this annual turnover. And the restaurants I worked in before 
it seems like we were always we spent so much time training people to to do the job and not enough time actually cooking with them or cooking ourselves. And because you don't have that turnover at Chez Panisse, you really do get to uh, dig in deep and and really really cook. And that is part of what makes the dining experience what it is, and also keeps people around. Plus, we change the menu every day, so it keeps it interesting. It's really a remarkable place, and it's such a intimate, tiny little space yeah. too. In so many ways, I, who decides what's going to get cooked? How does that process work? Uh, well, the chefs do. So I do for the downstairs restaurant, and then there's uh, two chefs in the downstairs restaurant as well. Myself and Jerome Bog, we share the job now. Uh, we do half the year on and half the year off, which also helps uh, keep us around because we get a six-month sabbatical basically every year. So we we write the menus, and Alice's role is as a critic um, for the downstairs menus since we publish them a week ahead. You know, we do the whole week's worth of menus. We submit them to her in writing, and she goes over them. And And then when she's in town, she travels quite a bit, but when she's in town, she's there all the time, and she sticks a fork in whatever dish is um, coming up and uh, tells us what she thinks, which is can sometimes be difficult but is a wonderful opportunity to have, to have someone who is so sharp about food and is so thoughtful to give you their honest opinion because as she always points out, you can put a dish out in front of somebody and they take a taste and they say, oh, it's delicious. Even if maybe they think there might be something that could be better, but sort of politeness. And not that Alice is impolite, but she wants it to be this certain way. She wants it to be the best it can be. And so she's free with her opinions, which is mostly uh, something that I really appreciate. I would like you to introduce us to your family. Tell us about the boys and yeah, your so, wife. My wife, Kathleen Henderson, is. Um, we met at college at art school, and uh, I sort of at some point veered off into the cooking world, but she's still uh, making art. Um, and then we have three sons. My um, oldest son is Henderson, who's about to graduate from the Cooper Union School in New York. He's 22, and then Milo is um, 19 and is at Bennington in Vermont, also an art school. And... Um, we have a little guy, uh, Liam, who's 10, and he's in fifth grade. In fact, Liam, his school is right between our house and Chez Panisse, so it's about three-minute walk from the restaurant. And when I'm there and my wife is working, I walk over and pick him up, and we walk back, and Liam loves to eat soup. The cafe always has some soup, so I'll heat him up a nice big bowl of soup, and nothing nicer than to feed your kid a big bowl of soup after school and he sits in the dining room while the waiters are setting up and kind of works on his homework and eats his soup and then maybe I'll get him a little cookie or an ice cream or something so that still goes on and the other boys you know similar kinds of things they were there a lot um and the older boys both worked their stints in the kitchen just sort of volunteering here and there because they wanted to to come in and learn some things and uh and they both also worked as bussers in the cafe do all three of them, or have you seen this light bulb moment in any of them when they're like, wow, we grew up at Chez Panisse? I think it's it's very familiar, but they also know that when they tell people that, people are just kind of like, wow, that's <laughs> the greatest thing I ever heard of. Uh, you know, my son Milo told me that he 
sometimes holds back that information because um, I do it too. People ask me, you know, especially in the Bay Area, uh, you know, people will say, oh, what do you do? I'm a chef. Oh, where are you, chef? Oh, this restaurant in Berkeley. And I try and kind of leave it there if I can. And then if they say which one and I say Chez Panisse and they're like, oh, just some restaurant in Berkeley, huh? Um, no, but it's it's great to have the kids there. And, and you know, I'm not the only chef or person working there who has kids, so we – we get to see each other's kids all the time. So, That's a wonderful thing. Oh, my goodness. Those lucky boys. Yeah. Cal, I'm really curious. Why is your inclination to sometimes be sort of undercover as in, out in the greater world as the Chez Panisse chef? Well, I think primarily because it can be kind of like a showstopper in a way. <laughs> and... Uh, and it can be a little bit awkward, and maybe I'm um, not comfortable with that. But also, you know, because we have a uh, sort of ethical stance about food as well, we're sort of a target for people. Um, I think every restaurant that's at a certain level of like um, cooking – I was going to say fine dining, but I kind of hate that term. But um, of, you know, a higher level of cooking, people are taking pot shots at you and trying to take you down. But especially because, you know, we do have this sort of – ethical thing about eating that it's right to eat in the season and to try and eat locally and try and eat organically and sustainable agriculture and all that. So, you know, it, it kind of can open that up a little bit. I did a, um, a reading in a bookstore a week or so ago, and one of the at the end of the reading, there was, a, um, there was some time for question and answers. And often the questions that people ask aren't actually questions. They're just something that they want to say about what they how they cook or something, which is fine. Uh, but one person actually took a shot at Chez Panisse and just said, well, you know, I ate there. I didn't think it was that great. Sometimes people want to take it down a notch, like, oh, well, you think you're so good. The Yelpers I'm talking about, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> one last question. What are you hoping for the boys? Uh, well, I think that my oldest son, he's going to graduate in um, December. He wants to travel but he, he needs to kind of save up some money for a while, and I'm hoping he's going to work with us at the restaurant for a while. In summers, he's had a, a job in a restaurant up in Gloucester, so he's a good cook. He's a very good cook. He actually made me a delicious meal last Saturday. And, you know, for the other two, I just want them to do what, they, what makes them happy, and I think they are doing that, so we're on the right track. Well, there is no way they couldn't be on the right track with you for a dad, no. Cal. So thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Cal Peternell, former chef at Chez Panisse, where he worked for 22 years. We spoke in 2014, two years before Cal left the iconic restaurant to pursue his own endeavors. To learn more about the chef, visit Cal Peternell. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. I've got big news about our upcoming monthly Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch, held on the last Sunday of every month at Tujac's Restaurant. This family-friendly event includes three courses, four drag queens, and, of course, bottomless mimosas. 
On Sunday, August 28th, we've invited our friends Bo Cialino and Matt Armato to bring their housewarming magic to our drag brunch. They'll be signing books and mixing and mingling, sharing all those at probably this tricks you've learned from them on Instagram. Don't miss the fun. Reservations may be had online and by calling 504-525-8676. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have more than 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily, for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, producer Blake Longlinay, the newest member of our team Kate Gotro, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.